Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. When it comes to the gas prices, uh, we're going through an incredible transition. Republicans seek to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety Program. I'm Josh Holmes, along with Comfortably Smug and Michael Duncan today. Uh, Smash is tending to some personal matters, but we have got a great program for you today. That was sundown, uh, letting the mask slip a little bit. He yeah. basically said the quiet part out loud. He did. Um, first of all, i got to say it's great to have you back in studio. It's nice here. to be here. It's very nice to be here. It's uh, it's wonderful. But yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Joe Biden is continuing to lose his mind little by little and admitting the obvious, which is, you know, the fact uh, that we are going through an incredible transition as, as his brain is also going through an incredible transition. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> and, and and I think that's an important thing is, is kind of like the subtext of what he let out is all the pain that Americans are going through right now at the pump is intentional. Yeah, the pain. Is, they're they're pain doing the this point. on purpose yeah. to them. This yeah. is happening because this is what the Democrats in power want. Right. Yeah, well, this is what they've said all along, right? And, of course, the media tries to sort of brush it under the rug and pretend like the whole plan all along wasn't to do away with fossil fuels. Right. They you want know. you to be driving an electric car, but the, the real tough spot they're in right now is they don't want you driving a Tesla. <laughs> 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 we got him. We got him right where we want him. <laughs> Democratic policy making very complicated. Very complicated. Full of enemies. And, and I mean, that's just the cruelty of it. like Dems want people paying five or six gallons. They want high gas prices. Yeah. It doesn't hurt them, right? Like you know, all these journos who write these crazy takes. Like I think Harwood said something wild. He was like, "Listen, actually, inflation. Everyone's going to be fine. They don't worry about it." You know, when 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 doesn't even occur to them when you're one of these city dwelling journos making God knows way too much. You don't feel any of this pinch if you even have a car. You know, it was like they had that great poll a couple of years ago. Of, uh, do you know someone who owns a pickup truck? And it was something like 75 percent of liberals. Have, absolutely do not. <laughs> Never met not. anybody who yeah. owns a pickup truck. So They're like, oh, gas prices doesn't really matter to me. What do they do when they got to move? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody needs a friend with a pickup truck, right? <laughs> There was this great tweet by Shane Goldmacher at the New York Times where he went and basically did some research on the national daily average for unleaded gasoline. And it turns out uh, every single day for a month, we have set a new record high. Wow. Think about that. Every single day for a month. Unbelievable. I keep Unbelievable. saying just like everyone just think back of what your life was like at this point in 2019. The economy was roaring. Gas was cheap. You really, I mean, it was difficult to imagine that, you know, the future would be anything less than just bright and incredible. <laughs> well, sundown showed up. Um, <laughs> so we got a great show. Uh, Kellyanne Conway is on the program today. 
very excited to talk to her. It's been a little while. I think it's her first time on the program. She's got a new book coming out. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk to her about that and a whole range of other issues, uh, which we'll get into. And, you know, we've got a lot of good content today. I think McDaniel did a nice job on this. Yeah, today. I mean, that's the thing is, this is like a show on steroids. Like, <laughs> there is not a loser among these list of topics. Because, uh, <laughs> like, you know, our, our, our first banter topic here combines the two things you t- you two gentlemen love the most. You, uh, weird sexual innuendo, and you, wait, monkey fighting. Wait. <laughs> I'm just talking about the tortoise. I'm talking about the tortoise, which keeps on coming up in our five-star reviews. <laughs> Was the tortoise innuendo? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, we got to talk about monkeypox. <laughs> we got to talk about it. It's Not- a real thing. The president of the United States addressed it, Michael. I know. And it just so happens that you get monkeypox by bumping uglies. So that's the thing. So, so for me, that's the way you get it. I, I, just, I didn't make it up. I'm not disputing it. I, I've been just seeing like background, you know, kind of like noise on like monkeypox. Yeah. I was like, oh, here we go. You know, I've really kind of I'm over infectious diseases. I'm over that part. Yeah. of, Oh, there was this initial excitement. What should we do? Now it's just like I don't care, man. There's like a new disease every day. I'm done. You know? <laughs> Bring on the plague. I'm gonna keep on marching. It doesn't matter. But but what's wild is then the AP. They this is this is from uh, well the the link here is from the Guardian. But I I saw the AP yeah. confirmed. They're like the monkeypox like outbreak in Europe is because of people having sex at some rave. At some rave. Well, here's the thing. It's actually not a thing. But Biden mentioned it when he was in Korea. So now it's a thing. Now it's a thing. Right. And he says, so (laughs) listen to that. During an official visit to South Korea, Biden told reporters, they haven't told me the level of exposure yet, but it's something that everybody should be concerned about. There we go. (laughs) The president who was speaking at Osan Air Base also added, it's a concern in that if it were to spread, it would be consequential. Which is like the worst things. Like he's just trying to get people to panic. Like we're, we're still in a pandemic, right? I mean, people are a little sensitive to that kind of talk. Seems very serious and very vague. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So monkeypox, for those of you who are uh, like myself, unaware of this particular brand of disease. I Googled. I do not recommend Googling. No, yeah, do not. I, I, that's the thing is on Twitter, I, I scrolled and it was like this photo of these hands. That no. Pox, oh. I'm like, I don't like looking at this shit. <laughs> <laughs> not for me. <laughs> well, Wikipedia says it's monkeypox is an infectious disease caused by monkeypox virus that can occur in certain animals, including humans. Symptoms include, and they have like all the things that you get when you get sick, right? But then you got a rash and there's blisters and there's like, you know, Ooh. like the chicken pox type thing only with monkeys. But what makes this different than the chicken pox is that you, you it's primarily spread through sexually, uh, you know. I, I, I'm looking through this and it says include uh, that. Where does the monkey name come from? Like, is, is, this isn't like a. Well, somebody banged a monkey. I that's mean, that's the thing, clearly it's, what's it's like happening. It's like a whole AIDS right? thing of where they're like, well, the monkeys had AIDS. How did it arise? Because <laughs> it doesn't. Because, like, if you look at it, it just. <laughs> Holmes was so close to keeping his composure there. Holmes was so close. He almost kept it together. I did. I can't. Think. But the thing is. It, because it just sounds it sounds like syphilis or something like that, right? Oh or, or like some kind of other sexually trait. Like what's the monkeypox component to it? Mm-hmm. So it's got to be, right? I mean, do we have – there's nothing that explains that. That's the thing. It's not like anything wholesome. Like you remember um, uh, when, the first story, like Louis Pasteur 
when he discovered like pasteurization and and, yep. and and how to make vaccines and stuff, it was like, oh well, you know, the milkmaids who are exposed to cows end up not getting. This is not wholesome. <laughs> this is just like okay, it's basically just an STD. We're attaching the monkey name to make it even more insidious. <laughs> well, well, what Biden sort of inferred that we would be looking into this to figure out whether we can provide some kind of a vaccine should this become a larger issue in the population. Well, it turns out we've had one for quite some time. So actually, all the talk about being concerned about it. It's not a concern. Like, don't be concerned yeah. about it. <laughs> Unless you want to bang a monkey, in which case I feel like you're right in the line of fire here. <laughs> this is this is so wild. Okay. See, you can't complain at the top and then do that. <laughs> so, so this is from... What everybody wants to know, Michael. <laughs> this is from a uh, WHO official. I don't trust the WHO. God knows they're like owned and operated by China at this point. But anyways, WHO official David Heyman, he says, what seems to be happening now is that it got into the population as a sexual form, as a genital form, and is being spread as our sexually transmitted infections, which has amplified its transmission around the world. Yikes. It says a lot. And, 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 the, and the news that we are specifically referenced to is as an ongoing outbreak of monkeypox was confirmed on the 6th of May, beginning with a British resident who, after traveling to Nigeria presented symptoms consistent with monkeypox on the 29th of April. Now, the problem is, uh, like the AP has, is I guess this is the British guy who ended up going to some rave? Yeah. And I guess he must have, like, I mean, gotten busy. I mean, these British the rave. raves sound, uh, <laughs> like, if that's the epicenter, I thought it was and just that's like, how you pass it along, I and now we've got like a problem? Taking drugs and dancing while, like, lights are flashing, but apparently there's a lot more going no, on. There's a, it's like a Studio 54 <laughs> vibe going on in there. <laughs> It's something else. Well, anyway, keep your eye on the monkey box. <laughs> um, uh, so did you guys follow? This story <clears throat> makes me so angry. Yeah. And one of the reasons why it makes me so angry is I, I had dinner with a couple who aren't in politics, like they're regular people and they don't, you know, they don't follow the ins and outs of all of this. But they mentioned to me, they're like, why are Republicans voting against baby formula? <laughs> They literally <clears throat> right because that because that was the narrative and the talking points that went out to to the media. Yeah. Right. So, so and and I was like, what the fuck? Like, what yeah. do you mean? And they're like, well, there was a there was a vote in favor of, of baby formula, and the Republicans voted against it. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. like I know we haven't covered in depth every reason why it is that we have a baby formula shortage, but clearly it's not a vote on the House floor yesterday. That's that solves it. <laughs> right. It's like wait, the, the baby formula was right here. The the Republicans wouldn't let us cut the ribbon off it. They're right. Like, so motion, now you don't have it. Motion to let babies have the baby formula. <laughs> Hell like, no. no, absolutely problem not. Problem solved. So, but then I I so I I Google at dinner. I Googled it. First thing that popped up was a Washington Post piece that says nearly 200 Republicans vote against Bill to ease baby formula shortage. Right. Incredible. And I'm like, okay, let me figure out what this does. I look into it. Do you know what this does? You know, it just, it just, it's a handout back to the FDA. It is for, it is $28 million. Quote, I'm quoting from the actual text of the legislation. For an additional amount for salaries and expenses, $28 million to remain available, it basically goes to the FDA yeah. like it's paying their salaries. <laughs> it just gave them a pay, a it's pay like, increase. Hey, guys, so you really screwed up this whole baby formal situation. 
Here's your bonus. Here's your bonus. <laughs> Great work. No, and then and then they have the audacity to turn around and be like, "Well, we would have baby for." And that's the thing is like well, these journals are criminals to push this. To to I mean because this is a very serious and the, concern. Totally this is babies. As evidenced by this conversation that I had with this young woman who is actually expecting a child in the next couple of months, so she's right. like pa- obviously very panicked about this situation, right. and and now she reads that. Yeah. Right. I mean, I guess well, it's that's just the, a lie. I guess that's the point. That's what they want. That's to exactly do, what right? it, I mean. This is what the media does. They lie on purpose for Democrats mm-hmm. and all the nuance is lost, of course, whenever they can write a story about legislation that makes Republicans look bad. It's in- of course, everything, everything that happens on Capitol Hill is nuanced. They choose to write it this way. You don't write it this way because you watch it from the gallery and you're like, oh, well, I don't know any better. This is my professional job and I have no fucking clue what's going on. <laughs> well, I mean, and never mind the fact that like. Like, if you're the reporter who wrote that, you're a fucking idiot. You're an idiot. You're an idiot or you're a liar. You should not have a job. Right. I mean, because the facts of this are so obvious, right? There's like one of three places in America that have huge repositories of making baby formula. One of them was shut down by the FDA. Yeah. Right? Right. And so then, ergo, a couple of months down the line, we have a critical shortage Mm -hmm. of this stuff. Like, none of that's mentioned. Mm -hmm. Right? That's not part of this story. It's the voting for the salaries of FDA. (laughs) That have ultimately done this. Well, anyway, we move on, which and it is a problem. We've been talking about it on the program for like three weeks three yeah. plus three weeks, maybe more. And so now Biden flies in 78,000 pounds of specialty infant formula arrived in Indianapolis. That's right. Uh, My hometown. Yeah, your hometown. And and Smug, you thought it was particularly... Yeah, I mean, well, that's a good thing. Uh, here so, we go. Indianapolis is known because the tallest building that they have is one story. <laughs> so it's like very flat and you clear know, flying. It's if like, you're trying to bring in like military plants, it's like your ideal airfield because there's nothing there. We get thousands of new listeners, guys, every week. You can't just go in and just insult the Midwest like that. It's not the They Midwest. don't get the bit. They don't get the joke. No, listen, I've been... Through the Midwest, it's a wonderful place, except for Indianapolis. Okay, if you are a new, if you're a new listener to the Variety Program, and you're like, "Why the hell is Smug doing this?" This is his bit against me and against the Midwest and against Indianapolis that there are only buildings that are two and stories for tall. For the new listeners, remember, I was I was on a very long road trip on the way, you know, from from the south up to Madison, Wisconsin. I remember stopping in Indianapolis to get gas, and the place it's it's basically like a hundred mile radius of just flat it's this classic east coast elitist smug who is like you know takes takes a a stop at at the gas gas station station. off the highway and is like oh well i've seen the whole place you can see see from one end of the city to the other that's complete bullshit it's just like a paved flatland and so like i I, you know if you're gonna have any city to use as an airfield this place is built for it the the motto of the state of Indiana is the crossroads of America for a reason, and that's why it's because was it's chosen. Like large and flat. And that's it's like why an the baby formula arrived. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, be that as it may, for whatever reason that it's in Indianapolis. I'm heated now. It's in Indianapolis. Yes. And the president of the United States tweeted out that he was, he has now shipped in seventy thousand tons of baby formula. Yeah, it's the, it's like the Berlin airlift in <clears> reverse. <throat> I mean, we look like a third world country. Well, it, it also it, it helps uh, just to, for a point of clarification. It was seventy thousand pounds. Yeah. So uh, number one, the, less than forty tons, not right. seventy thousand tons, as the president uh, had explicitly said on his own Twitter account. <laughs> yeah, he, he, in theory, he'd be in trouble with his own Ministry of Truth if it still exists. That's exactly. He's out there pushing this disinformation. I saw a really great tweet on this. Um, where this gentleman Pretzel Cafe on Twitter said, "Baby formula runs about twenty-two dollars a pound on average. 
70,000 pounds is about $1.5 million of formula. U.S. yearly formula purchases exceed $3.6 billion. Way to secure nearly four hours of domestic <laughs> demand, Joe. So four. He, he made this like photo op, dude. He's like, okay, <clears throat> we're we're sending the military to do this like airlift. We're, we're bringing home the formula. We got four hours worth. So so so, what you just hit on there, Smug, is something I've been thinking about a lot. And when Republicans take control of Congress, this is something we need to investigate in the White House because I've noticed this too, on this um on this baby formula airlift bullshit. There's been a lot of official resources in the White House, like video production work, mm-hmm. going towards making this look like not a crisis caused by this administration. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, like, did you see the video of him doing teleconferences with like the head of Gerber and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And then also they had like drone shots of the of the 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 carrier, the plane carrying all of the formula inside, outside. They had like troops like pushing the formula crates up like a lot of serious production work that you would usually be done in like on a campaign. The like campaign a mission, a, mission accomplished uh-huh. unless you're a government <clears throat> but official the tax, using power. Right. The taxpayers are paying for all of this. I would love a Republican on oversight when we take control of the House to maybe look at some of that. I think it'd be great. How about the fact that your own FDA is the one that shut the plant down and nobody said anything until all of a sudden the store shelves were full. <laughs> so, so, so this right? is... This, yeah, where was the video guy then? This <clears throat> is another great tweet that I saw on Twitter. This is from Ivy Miles. Uh, referring to this this airlift, it says, the increasingly common tendency of the civilian government creating crisis after crisis only to use the military to bail itself out is probably not healthy for Republican governance. Mm. That's the thing is they created this problem, and now they're trying to— Turn it into a campaign ad. Bingo. That's my point. That's yeah. my point here, and it's, it's, it's fucking ridiculous. But here's the thing. I, I would be more outraged by it if I thought anyone actually bought that— well, you know I mean, I your mean? friend, your friend thinks it's the Republicans' fault now. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's a pretty far. No, leap. that vote is that infuriates me. No question <laughs> about that. In the way they covered it, but the idea that that moms are just sort of like complete baffled that all of a sudden we have a shortage. Mm-hmm. I mean, they know deeply. Like every mom I know who's got a young child, yeah, every single has been very concerned about this for a long period of time. I, and honestly, yes, right? I, I don't think I can remember hearing about an issue. That so many folks are actually like actual human beings, not just, you know, people whose brains have been melted by being in politics, but like actual people. I don't think I've heard of in a long time an issue that everyone is concerned about. Like yeah. This. Yeah. Well, they fucked it up again. And here we are. And, and last last good tweet. So this is from Aaron Cowan. He says, when I traveled abroad, I saw the use of the military to do everything. Checkpoints, manufacturing, universities, voting as a sign of a third world country. It screams, we only have one institution. Uh, we can even try to trust. It's sad watching the same pattern unfold here. Uh, and that's the thing. You're seeing this administration time and time again have to lean on the military to clean up their own problems. And then how do they repay the favor to the military? Well, they literally throw their lives away in Afghanistan without withdrawal. It's absolutely shameful the way that the Biden administration has conducted themselves. Yeah. No, I'm I'm, I'm here for that. Absolutely. Uh, so, okay, there's some new polling coming out, fellas. mm um, <clears throat> this was from CBS News over the weekend. 69% see the economy is quote-unquote bad. Nice. Oh, no. <laughs> but not nice. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, not nice, but nice. 65% say Biden is slow to react. Oh, jeez. What, like what, what are the 35% watching? <laughs> How many people are like, oh, no, he's really quick. Like, what are the odds? If you, if you threw a football to Biden, 
What are the odds it hits him in the face as opposed Smashes to him catching? Like, let's be right serious, folks. Smashes him. <laughs> what about him. his slow to react? There's just no way. But this, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, Ron Klain takes to try to, like, you know, sort of work this around. He tweets out, I hate to spoil the narrative, but this poll shows POTUS approval rating moving up and solid public performance on the two biggest problems we inherited, COVID and jobs. <laughs> I mean, what? Wow. <clears throat> I, the disconnect from reality is really striking at this point. That's like, it might is, be clinical. I mean, the, the, that must be the White House right now must be just this like bunker of people who are like, okay, guys, like, you know, shit is bad. We cannot let you can tell this is a situation where they're not letting the bad news percolate to the decision making. Yeah, it feels like folks. that for sure. They're absolutely in their own silo of information at this point. It's, it's a real, real silver lining to have to squint and find there. <laughs> When 69% say the economy's bad. Well, He's like, well, well, well great- folks, I hate to ruin the narrative, but things are great. Here's, here's That's the- your chief of staff, dude. <laughs> yeah, things are great. Things you're pessimistic about in the next few months. Cost of good and ser- goods and services is now at 77%. Jeez. Holy moly. The national economy concern is 68%. The stock market's at 67%. And, and so this also buttresses another thing that I am growing increasingly concerned about is for the first time, and I mean, in a lot of folks' adult lives, you're seeing numbers like this. Um, the last, I mean, this is the highest inflation in 40 years. A lot of folks out there have never experienced a situation like this where we have inflation jumping so, you know, dramatically. Um, there's going to be a lot of decision makers who don't know, have any experience dealing with things like this. There's going to oh, be yeah. a lot of bumps in the road ahead. No, it's a, it's a huge problem. And it, particularly all of these numbers are having huge resonance amongst the Hispanic community. Yep. Right. Uh, percentage you think Biden is slow to react to important things. Sixty percent of Hispanics. That is a big, big number. Almost half of African Americans. Forty nine percent. Right? Like okay, I keep saying don't take don't take the midterms for granted. We gotta push harder than ever because this is what we're fighting. The reason yeah. we, you know, the reason we're fighting so hard and need Republicans to get in there is to put the brakes on the policies that are causing these problems. That's exactly right. Well I mean, so I mean Okay, slow to react to important things. I understand what that means like a policy context. Might I posit a different reason why people are reacting this way? Slow to react in the literal sense. <laughs> like, I think if you put, like, Biden incontinent, you might get 66, 60%. You know, Biden bad at memory. Incontinent. Well, the Pope's certainly on the other side of the right. ledger on that one. Right. I know that. Right. No, it's, it, it, I think that has, may have something I to mean, do with it. I mean, if you've that. seen him on television, you get the sense he's slow to react. Like, if you threw a ball at him, he wouldn't catch it. <laughs> this, right? Or maybe it works like Awakenings. <laughs> Remember that one? Yes. That movie Awakenings with De Niro? <laughs> he couldn't move, but you yes. threw a ball at him, and he'd catch, catch it, it immediately. Time. Yeah. yeah. And, and to go back to how disconnected a lot of these journals are, you know, one of the worst people ever. Of all time, like, you know, we're counting Genghis Khan, the Huns, all the whole, among all history's awful people, John Harwood <laughs> is really up there, right? John Harwood. And uh, so his take was, uh, in, in Washington uh, Washington debate, inflation is, quote, crushing families in real life. Pandemic relief has eased uh, the pain. A Moody's economist says that excess saving cushioned the impact even for lower income households. Households are, for the most part, in good financial place. What the hell are they talking about? Here's the counterpoint. So then CNBC has uh, this this uh, bit of data. Americans now have an average of 9000 less in savings 
than they did last year. With 8.5% inflation on top of That's it. That's right. That's right. right. And also, as I'd mentioned previously on the show, so far this year, there's been a record number of applications for credit cards, and Americans have already, in under six months, racked up the highest amount of credit card debt we've had in history. And, it, and a 25% reduction in the stock market. That's right. So 8.5% on top of the 9000 And you're, you're seeing your 401Ks, your uh, retirement accounts have all gotten crushed. A reduction of 25% in your market and an increased debt load. And that's the thing is because to make ends meet, you're like, all right, well, I guess we got to get a credit card. This is, I mean, this is such a disaster in the making and it did not have to be like this. No. This is all self-inflicted when you have Democrats owning the House, the Senate, and the White House. This is what happens. And you could turn it around too. I mean, that's the thing. I hope, God, I hope we can figure out how to win some elections here because it's none of this stuff is like, inextricably break, broken in perpetuity. It's broken because all of the things these guys are doing are making it worse. That's the thing. It's, uh, you know, I have some kind of hope that, you know, it, it's kind of like when Clinton first got elected and, 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 and things went to hell very quickly. In the midterms, Republicans, you know, took control. They got that contract with America and, and Clinton had no choice, but, you know, they called it triangulation. He had no right. choice but to be like, all right, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. This is such a different Democratic Party. That's though. the thing. You know what I mean? They've gotten so radicalized. Like I, Bill Clinton almost looked like he was more comfortable pushing like a welfare reform agenda with House Republicans than he was trying to do Hillary Care. Yeah. In the first two years, you know what I mean? Like it felt like that was a little bit more bread and butter for that guy in ni- in the nineties. That's not bread and butter with Joe Biden. Yeah, and he's already shown that he's completely beholden to the like furthest left elements of that party like AOC bullies that old guy yeah all day long yeah all day long he's he, like he's so terrified that he got called a racist by Kamala he made her the vice president <laughs> like this is a guy who will easily get pushed around right so you want to know what the next big thing is what's the next big thing the next big thing is uh the White House monitoring diesel supply on the east coast preparing policy actions to mitigate supply challenges I mean, it, and whenever they mention something like this, it's not like they're like, hey, we're keeping our eyes on this. It's kind of like we already fucked it up. We now, fucked now we want, now up, we want to make guys. it look like we're doing something like when Saki random was like, we're not worried about food shortages. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and then the food shortage. <laughs> <Yeah. began. laughs> well, so the problem with the D, de- it's like the underpinnings of of the supply chain. Right. If you have a diesel supply problem, you don't have trucks. If you don't have trucks, you don't have goods. If you don't have goods, your grocery store shelves are bare and there's not a goddamn thing you can do about it. And like who all has this administration tried to punish people who can produce diesel? Right. Truck drivers. Like they've gone like full bore on trying to attack every part of this that keeps this country running. They've been trying to dismantle. Do you wonder sometimes like libs sitting around in their cocktail party. Do you, do you ever wonder if they come to the conclusion that maybe this shit worked too well for them? <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, wow, I really thought it would be harder to totally undermine the fossil fuel dependence <laughs> on this country. This is really easy. We broke everything. Yeah, I didn't know we could put everybody into poverty immediately. <laughs> That's amazing, right, guys? I mean, I, because they have. And plus, he's like, my hedge funds never had a better quarter. Right. <laughs> we are out there. <laughs> Oh, so uh, you guys have been following this Mike Tyson thing. I love Mike Tyson news, by the way. Yeah. I love it. And a few weeks back, we covered about how he got in a fight with the dude on the airline. Yeah, and the airplane. The guy was bothering the him. The guy was being a total asshole. Yeah. He total was. Asshole. He, I mean, he deserved to be punched. Yeah. And yeah, he definitely did. 
And if you get punched and you you live to tell the tale from being punched by Mike Tyson, I think he probably owes a thank you card to Mike Tyson. Yeah. He does. He Clearly, the man pulled the punch because it's Mike Tyson. Yeah. If he wanted to kill you, he would have killed he you. He would have done it, right? Well, he's opened up about this a little bit, and I think this fits uh, very, very clearly and squarely within your view of, uh, of, of airline travel, Smug. So it says here, and I love McDaniel putting it this way, it says, banter, Mike Tyson and Comfortably Smug agree on airlines. <laughs> Tyson breaks silence about airplane fight. Shouldn't be taking public planes. Like, I love how the guy's like, listen, this wouldn't have happened. If I'm, I'm flying. flying commercial. What do you think is going to happen? But I, I, he, wasn't, he wasn't in coach, right? I think he was in business. So normally you still don't expect people to be assholes in business, but yeah, I mean, these Close days. proximity, though, you know? I mean, there's, like, he's still dealing with the guy who's throwing stuff at his head and whatnot anyway. And at the end of the day, the people you're dealing with in business are like, you really couldn't go the extra, you know. Well, you, this is probably an upgrade. This guy's got enough points to get up here and cause trouble. Smugs. <laughs> Smugs calling Mike Tyson this, poor. No, 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 no. I'm, ta- I'm talking about the guy who attacked him. I'm like, this is what happens. It's like, you know, you've got someone who probably got, like, their little comfort plus, and they're like, oh, well. Oh. He was totally Shafast, by the way. The guy was completely oh, yeah. bombed. And that's the thing is, like, you never normally, you, you never hear about these fights happening in first class. No one gets no. drunk, out of control, punching people. It's like I guarantee this is a guy who jumped up from from his comfort plus, <laughs> threw in a few points at the gate, got his upgrade, and he's like, well, 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 unlimited guy, drinks. Huh? Guy's been holding down a spot at the airport lounge bar for three hours, getting <laughs> sauced up, hoping he got those comfort plus points. <laughs> I feel like Smug won't rest until we all are in suits and ties. That's right. Smoking, smoking cigarettes. cigs. Uh, uh, we used to have we used to have airline travel in this country that like <laughs> and, and, and uh, the, the best comparison to make, you know, you think about how America has fallen behind. Everyone think about what it's like when whenever you're like, okay, we got a trip, we're flying somewhere, you're like, oh boy. You know, number one, you have to deal with the TSA that's out of control. Oh yeah, it's no, it's always we, stressful. We, we've bombed the shell Al Qaeda. Like those guys can't even like get running water at this point, let alone try to cause trouble on our planes. But still, when you roll up to the airport, okay, I'm going to get fondled and harassed, <laughs> or pay, you know, uh, TSA pre-check and clear and everything, which is it's a protection racket at this point. Not to deal with them. That's step one. Then airlines at this point are like, okay, how much can we get away with and say, oh, due to like COVID safety, you know. We, you're not going to get anyone to serve you a drink until after right. takeoff, and 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 you know you're not going to get a meal. We're going to give you a boxed lunch, you know, a third-rate <laughs> boxed lunch. You know, this is this is what it's come to. You travel international, and it's just like this is what's happened. It's like, you know, American Airlines at this point, or how much can we cut to give as little as possible? You travel international, like how can we make this experience good for you? Do That's you like believe? A, a fundamental do you believe difference. that uh, airlines have become too approachable for the common American? <laughs> Yeah. See, that's what it comes down to. <laughs> that's, that's what He's like, when I take a flight to Dubai, it's really nice. And it's like, why do you fucking think so? <laughs> you mean your flight to Albuquerque isn't as nice? Yeah. My $7,000 ticket to yeah. Dubai. Turns out they treat you pretty well. <laughs> I, I, th- I think if... if you Smug know, learns economics. I think everyone will be happier if in coach, instead of seats, you make like little... I'm not saying cages. <laughs> Unbelievable. But like a little thing. Unbelievable. To keep him from causing trouble. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, so, so, and, and for sure, the, you know, the, the curtain, that's not doing the trick for you. No, it's got, at this point, it's got to be like uh, for the pilots. You know? <laughs> it's like, it's the, like a closed and locked We got door. a locked door and a dude with a gun waiting for trouble. <laughs> but, but <laughs> on to Mike Tyson's take on the situation. It says former heavyweight champion boxer Mike Tyson talked about his experience punching a man on an April JetBlue flight. I mean, it's JetBlue. Uh, 
In a, in a video that has since gone viral, Tyson is seen punching a fellow plane passenger, leaving him bloodied. The man on the receiving end of Tyson's fist was identified as Melvin Townsend, who was reported to have been drunk while pasturing the former boxer. He was effing with me, man, Tyson said of the man's behavior, adding he had taken a photo with Townsend. Like, this, I saw a video of it. This oh, guy yeah, the was, guy was terrible. Totally drunk. Like, demand, he got his, like, selfie with Tyson. And he's still, like, he was, like, Wait, he got the messing. selfie and then still wouldn't stop. Still yeah. wouldn't stop. He was, like, tapping. Like, he was, like, tapping. Like, I don't, no one should ever invade someone else's private space. Like, when you do that, okay, combat has occurred. Like, <laughs> now you're, everyone knows, we agree, it, it's combat rules are now yeah. in effect. It says, uh, <laughs> this is a great quote from Tyson. It says, I shouldn't even be taking public planes. My <laughs> wife gets mad I take public planes. Public planes is such a great... <laughs> like it's a bus. <laughs> <laughs> public planes. Oh, it's so good. He should not know the indignity of a public plane. I'll never plane. forgive Don King for stealing his money and forcing Mike to take public planes. <laughs> like, that is so bad. <laughs> well, the upshot is nobody's uh, pressing charges, and uh, so it all just goes to entertain us. Uh, nobody has to pay the bill on that one. Yeah. Uh, here's for a serious segment. Um, Speaking of someone who likes hurting people. <laughs> Allegedly. Parody, parody. <laughs> We're all laughing. Um, so... I, listen, if you missed this news, I don't blame you because nobody covered it. But it's the single biggest piece of no, news that I know of in a very long time. And it had this happen on the other party, it would be, I mean, just oh, like gosh. everywhere. But Hillary Clinton, it was it revealed in testimony at this trial for this Sussman cat mm-hmm. that Hillary Clinton personally approved the plan to share the Trump-Russia allegation with the press in 2016, according to Robbie Mook, her then-campaign manager. And, I mean, I really hope he can get into the witness protection program. Like, it, it took a little bit of courage for him to admit this, that, like, yeah, it, it's like a, you see a mob trial, and he's like, when I get told to push the button, I push the button, right? <laughs> and, and they're like, can you point at the person who did it? And he just straight up pointed. He's like, Hillary yeah, Clinton. Hillary told me. <clears throat> I mean, if I were Mook, I'd be wearing turtlenecks from here on. He <laughs> should send out a tweet and be like, I'm very happy with my life. I would never kill myself. I would never kill myself. <laughs> I mean, so so he, he testified. And in this trial, we're learning all kinds of things. Yeah. Right? They're sort of lifting the hood on the way that the Clinton campaign processed oppo research. Mm-hmm. Right? And we now know that the way they got it through the dossier and everything else but but there's a lot of hand waving in all of these stories, even the good ones, right? I mean this this one's from CNN. It's got a lot of detail on it, and, and you know that's good. But there's a lot of hand waving through, it, sort of explaining that these are what campaigns do with opposition research, and they try to find a home for them, and then they push them around. And it's like they're trying to tell the reader like these are the ways that the campaign works. Right. Wrong. Nothing to see here. That's an Wrong. absolute lie. Like- it is an absolute lie because here's the thing. Yes. That is what you do on a campaign. What you do not do is enlist federal authorities to begin prosecuting your political enemies based upon Mm -hmm. whatever sort of salacious allegation you can mine out there. That's the thing is like the the level of this outside, it would only take, I I think this is the most damning part of the evidence is you could only be as insane and power hungry as Hillary Clinton to try something like this. Because if you think about this logically is, You've been given this document, which is so far-fetched, right. so absurd and unbelievable, 
and would not be taken seriously and knowingly you're like, okay, we will give it to this lawyer and we'll give it to the feds and hopefully they will run with it and put out any kind of statement and then we can use the federal authorities to try to launder this made up bullshit to make it sound serious and hopefully we can win an election. Well, so so it's even, I think even worse than that is like, you know, I mean, and back to your point, Holmes, on on the, well, this is what campaigns do. This is opposition research or whatever. It's like, well, that wasn't your fucking opinion when you're all writing about this like four years ago. Mm-hmm. The media was, you know, look, looking at all this information, incredulous at how it was true and how could this be possible and writing all these stories. Right. Yep. And the reason why um, they're they're just saying it's like opposition research now is to sort of minimize the role that Hillary Clinton had in all of this, right? Oh, this is what campaigns do, yada, yada, yada. But the enlisting of federal agents is not on one side of it. It's not done. And and then and then the media on the other side, what they were executing was this inside outside game that was basically a criminal fucking conspiracy. That's exactly that's what, what it was. was. That's what because it was. eventually what you had were these articles that were pushed by Robbie Mook and Hillary Clinton that were used in the fucking FISA against Carter Page. Right. Right. They did that. It was a criminal conspiracy. They have to go to jail. That's the thing. Is, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Is This is black and white criminal conduct. Yes. Straight up, this is criminal conduct. This was a conspiracy. This was planned. This was executed. And and, and the fact that, like, uh, when Elon tweeted about this, he was like, I guarantee the vast majority of folks know nothing about this. We were under a situation where for years the media was complicit in pushing this absolute fabrication delusion and they fucking knew it was fake they knew it was they fake. knew it was and so many people were telling them you have this wrong you have this wrong and they ignored it because it was too good to check yeah it was always too good to check they wanted to write another dog shit story for clicks and they did it for fucking years and if you're one of those journalists listening to this right now as some of them who hate listen to this <laughs> I hate you so much for writing those stories. <laughs> and that's the thing is because it, they were all so fake they, and you destroyed your credibility. And now nobody believes what you think. Like my family doesn't believe what you think. Your average Americans don't believe what you think. There's nothing you can do to tell people the truth anymore because you cried wolf yeah. for too long. But here's the thing is yeah. I think that's in a, in, in a perfect world. What actually ended up happening is these people spent years peddling this like, Moscow is invading America. Trump is a KGB agent. They all became like they got their like CNN contributed contracts of being like a a disinformation or a Russia expert. They got their book deals. They got fucking ridiculous. What's her name? Like uh, I can't remember the crazy lady who took pictures with like white supremacists. Um, There's so many crazy. Yeah, there there are. She took pictures with one of those white supremacists and 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 acts like she's some like Russia expert. Uh, Got her book deal. Got now she's on CNN. Not even Natasha Bertrand. Bertrand. Yeah, it's Natasha she, she's Bertrand. She's the other one, but oh. yeah, uh, they all got their CNN contracts, right. and none of these people are going to have to suffer consequences in not in the professional aspect. No, but there and that's the be thing that criminal. Ups- that's the thing that upsets because me the most. Th- this, these people, what they had actually done is they were part of a conspiracy. They were yeah. willingly part of a conspiracy, and their colleagues sit there and say, "Oh well, I guess they made a mistake. People got promoted. They didn't get fired. Nobody's shunned. They get more TV time." That's the reality of the the the, the after action report on Russia Gate is everybody got more money and book deals and promotions and well, guess we made a mistake. Oh, oops, we ruined five years of American history. Oops. So, so I want to I want to read the little highlights from this. It says Hillary Clinton personally approved her campaign's plans in fall of 2016 to share information with the reporter about an uncorroborated alleged server back channel between Donald Trump and a top Russian bank. Her former campaign manager testified Friday in federal court. 
Robin Wick said he attended a meeting with other senior campaign officials where they learned about the strange cyber activity that suggested a relationship between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank, which is based in Moscow. The group decided to share the information with the reporter, and Mook subsequently ran that decision by Clinton herself. Quote, we discussed it with Hillary, Mook said later, adding that she agreed with the decision. Now it's a conspiracy. A campaign staffer later passed information to a reporter from Slate Magazine, which the campaign hoped the reporter would, quote, vet it out and write what they believe is true. Yeah, okay, that's why you give it to Slate. Yeah. Um, slate, yeah. slate. It's like, oh, Slate is copy-paste, dude. Very like, if a dem gives it to them, oh, yeah, absolutely. Slate published <laughs> vet, a story on October vet. 31st, 2016, raising questions about the odd Trump alpha cyber links. After that story came out, Clinton tweeted about it. This is how it works, these criminals. Right. And posted a news release that said, quote, this secret hotline may be the key to unlocking the mystery of Trump's ties to Russia. The testimony came in the criminal trial of Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, who is being prosecuted by the Trump era special counsel, John Durham. Durham is investigating potential misconduct ties uh, tied to the FBI's Trump Russia probe. The trial has shed light on the dark arts of, and that's the thing. This is CNN saying it's shed light on the dark arts of political opposition research. This yeah, everybody does this. This is an opposition <laughs> research. This is a criminal conspiracy. <laughs> it's a criminal it, it conspiracy. It hand waves through it, right? right? Yeah. And, and like people will act like we're the crazy ones. Right. You know, like we're the ones who are like, no, 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 no. Wait, um, remember why Michael Sussman is having a trial in the first place. The reason he's having a trial is because the same information that they pulled, that they, they sent to Slate and then tried to work in a public atmosphere, they'd sent, uh, either sent or derived from Sussman or, or, or his people. And he went to the FBI, unbeknownst to the FBI, on behalf of the Clinton campaign to present the information for them to investigate in an official capacity. Not not in a mm-hmm. campaign capacity, not in a rhetorical capacity, not in a, like a First Amendment way. He's going to the FBI to try to obtain their interest in prosecuting a case against Donald Trump and his campaign for what we now know is utter horseshit. And I mean, think about that, but also think about the, the number of dollars that were spent, not just by the Trump campaign and everybody else, but like all those you mentioned, Carter Page. Yeah. All the individuals who had to sit before people who had their lives ruined, lives ruined, lives ruined, yeah, for this, for, for this, this crazy woman's yeah. thirst for power, yeah. And David Corn, one of the reporters who was pitched by Fusion GPS and these people in the Hillary Clinton campaign, they wrote that article that got the FISA warrant on Carter Page. He wrote a book called Russian Roulette. Yeah, all of it fake. Yeah, all of it wrong. Yeah. and he got to make money off that. Yeah, nope, not punished. As an aside, before we wrap this. I saw yesterday that the D.C. Attorney General is suing Facebook uh, for the uh, uh, what was the bizarre claim that they had with the Facebook uh, Russia. Oh, the Cambridge Analytica. Yes, Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, which, which everyone, we all knew was fake. And I told every reporter in town that it was fake and nobody would write that it was fake. I mean, famously, like famously, Cambridge Analytica was just taking Fake. money from people and actually not doing work. Right. Like, and I mean, every reporter in this town ignored the fact that every Republican operative told them that they, these people are snake oil salesmen and they don't actually do any of this stuff and you're buying the pitch deck and they wrote it anyway. And they wrote it for three years. They wrote it because they, they that's where the money was. To, to make money. To make money. They wrote it. They made a whole documentary and put it on Netflix. Yeah. All of it fake. <laughs> and, and I want to close uh, mentioning this. I, I've spoken about Jake Sullivan before. Absolute lizard person. Terrible guy <laughs> who knows nothing. Is that there, defamatory to call someone be, a lizard person? He looks like a lizard. That's why I said it. Uh, but, but it's important to note. It's not a statement he, of fact. He's an awful person. And, and right here it says, um, inside the courtroom, prosecutors showed the jury Clinton's tweet about the Trump Alpha article from Slate. 
and Mook read aloud portions of the campaign's news release about the story. The release was from Jake Sullivan, who is currently President Joe Biden's national security yeah, advisor. Yeah, these people are still in positions of power in our government. Well, it's He's because the they're only— national security advisor. And, and just remember, when Democrats have char- get in charge, there is no, like, different group. It's all the same. Right. They're all the Democratic establishment group, right? There is no new president. There is no new administration. There is— Meet the, the new boss, same as the old boss, says, every single time. quote, we can only assume that federal authorities will now explore this direct connection between Trump and Russia. There it is. As part of their existing probe into Russia's meddling in our elections, Sullivan sent the release on October 31st, one week before Election Day. They This is a conspiracy for them to try and steal an election is what they did. And right. this, this crooked bastard, Jake Sullivan is our national security advisor. wanted to steal an election and they tried to take down a president for four years and and this is tangential but the disinformation board right yeah. this dhs thing that's going to you know counter foreign interference in america and, and foreign misinformation they all told us hunter biden's laptop was foreign misinformation yep right you had hillary clinton here in 2016 saying russia was the reason donald trump was going to beat her ass if that DHS board was still allowed, and thank God it's now on pause or whatever the yeah. hell that means, what if that was around during this time? Yeah, they would. Say- what, what, what else? What we have not been, would they have taken down Donald Trump's Facebook page then? Would they have stopped him from being able to send emails to supporters? That's they'd be, like, they'd be exactly handcuffing they people at the New York Post who right. figured out the truth. Right. That's exactly. I what mean, they the, the ramifications of this stuff should not be lost on us because it was just five years ago. That's no, it. totally. And, 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 and they will when Republicans take back control. I mean, we got to roll out the paddy wagons. These people need to be locked <laughs> up. Enough yeah. is enough. My dream, my, my dream, and I know this isn't going to happen. My dream is Hillary Clinton in a cell, and the only book she can read is David Korn's Russian Roulette. Like, <laughs> and I I'll already want to give a warning. Like, you're going to hear these, like, oh, true conservative, you know, the think tank types who are going to be like, we should not prosecute oh, we our political move enemies. These are criminals. These are criminals. In America, you know, I still hope we have law and order. We got to put these people Somebody in handcuffs needs to be and paddy wagons for something, right. right? I don't know exactly what that looks like, but the, the, the fact that we're dealing with this in the trial of some lawyer it, it doesn't incredible. not enough, right? It's, it's incredible. Like, it's got to keep coming. Anyway, there's one other thing because I think this tangentially uh, revolves in, and then we get to a game. Uh, you know, Kessler at the Post, yeah, had this hilarious Kessler. Kessler, yeah, he had this hilarious thing. Uh, voting is surging in Georgia, despite Democratic claims that the new election law would make it harder to cast a ballot. This is the greatest. It was the greatest tweet I saw all weekend. Oh, my. The replies were just beautiful. <laughs> the lips were so pissed. After three weeks of early voting uh, in Tuesday's primary, record-breaking turnout is undercutting predictions of the Georgia Election Integrity Act of 2021 would lead to fall-off in voting. Yeah. By the end of Friday, the final day of early in-person voting, nearly 800,000 Georgians had cast a ballot, more than three times the number of 2018, higher than even in a presidential year of 2020. Well, that's impossible because they passed a Jim Crow law. I was told by President Joe Biden. You know what's really important here? Do you think they got water? <laughs> Did they get water at those ballots? Did they serve water? Did they get hot cakes? Any <laughs> fucking tea? It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Like the damn... <laughs> Did they get hotcakes? In effect, the Dems really wanted to have their like dark money, uh, left wing dark money groups out there able to be like, hey, we will like essentially we'll give you lunch if you show up. Yeah, like to to harvest ballots into into the middle of you know parking lots and just dump them into into un un uh, secure uh, whatever they're called. Yeah, the drop offs and the the, drop boxes. Yeah, that was their plan. 
and, and 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 Georgia passes a law, which is basically like you got to show ID and you can't right. just screw around. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. And then they Dems moved. were like, "This is Jim Eagle, you know? It's worse than Jim Crow." <laughs> you guys, Jim Eagle. They moved the Major League moved Baseball All Star Game because of this. Because of this, and they got it historically wrong. And, and what's wild is they've memory hold this because to me, the most disgusting aspect of all of this is this was all predicated on a very simple and, in my opinion, extremely racist idea. Dems for years, I mean, this is so insane in hindsight to think. Dems for years said, black people, they're just not good at getting IDs. They really believe that. Like, you noticed ever since uh, that the All-Star game moved and they all realized what a huge mistake that was. I think Warnock was the first person who started saying, like, we got to stop talking about this. We can't say that black people can't get IDs. That's fucking racist. Well, of course ridiculous. it's a racist lie, right? I mean, that's just the way that they handle all of these things. They, they, they hope that there's enough of a mindless echo chamber within the media in corporate America that they can actually enforce this dumbassery. And in the case of Georgia, look, it took like well, two months for people. People still believe it. And and voter suppression is a is a like the idea of it is a great tool for them because it's not it's a non falsifiable theory. Yeah. Like the response to this by Kessler is, well, that only means we tried harder. We we tried so hard to vote because because of the restrictions that we had to overcome that actually made it surge. So like the voter suppression backfired into more <laughs> p- voter participation, and it's like, well, okay, well you could say that okay. ad infinitum. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. okay. Well, thanks for that, <laughs> uh, guys. Let's play a game. Let's do it. Let's play a game. Um, so we haven't played it in a while, which is why I really want to play Claim to Fame. Oh, excellent, excellent. Let's, let's hit that song. Brainworm takes forever. You're gonna like my post most. I feel engagement forever. Broken brain takes with no shame. Queen. Hot takes up to eleven. Saving Joe Biden from blame. Queen. It's gonna live forever. Ronnie, remember my. Oh, just a great song. And I like that song because it's really long and so Smug hates it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's a good one. It's a banger. I it's a banger. It is a banger. Uh, so for our new listeners here, Claim to Fame is where I uh, read four tweets, three of which which have been retweeted by White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, one which is not, and Josh and Smug need to decide which one was not RT'd by White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain. Okay. Tweet number one. This is from Strike Pack. Oh my god! This is that oh Rachel uh, Bitcoffer. Is she uh, still? I, I don't Pack. Know. Did they get rid of her? She's still there. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, she started this. I, you know, there, there aren't enough Democrat super PACs apparently. Jesus. So, <laughs> Operation Fly Formula delivers seventy thousand oh. pounds of infant formula for American mothers and their infants. Thank you. POTUS. Get your Democrats Deliver merch today. And there's this no. shirt oh that says God. Democrats Deliver. No! So people who can't find formula and you got inflation through the roof, they're going to buy a t-shirt from you oh that God. says Democrats Deliver. No, no, no. That's, no. that's the tweet. Oh my gosh. Tweet number two. Dana Milbank. <laughs> oh, it goes from bad to worse. <laughs> the Buffalo shooting shines a light on Republicans' rhetoric. And Congress once again faces the question of whether it will produce any significant policy in response to a mass shooting. Mm, mm, mm. This is so predictable. 
Yeah. Um, statement number three, Brad from Bradley Whitford. Oh yeah, that that guy's gone after me before. Yeah, the guy. Like the, for those of you who don't know, he 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 played. Um, uh, Josh guy, Lyman. Josh Lyman in the West Wing. He's yeah. gone after you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. awesome. He yeah, likes yeah, to engage yeah. in politics. <laughs> like the guy's the guy's guy's an actor. He's not. There's no fucking clue what he's talking about. But because he <laughs> he pretended to do the job, he can tell people what what how it works. Terrific conversation. This is a quote tweet. Uh, Ron Klain did this conversation with um, his deputy chief of staff. Anyway, the quote tweet is from Bradley Whitford. <laughs> Again, a guy who's never worked in the White House has any clue how it actually fucking works. Terrific conversation. Behind every great White House chief of staff, there's no. always a great deputy chief of staff. In Ron's case, there are two. Oh, oh my God. It's, it's from like, a guy who pretended to do the he's, job. He's like acting as though he's an expert so, yes, on yes. West Wing infrastructure. I'm trying to remember. So, so, so what, what was Josh's job? In, was he constructor? It was, no, it was he was the, the lady, right? I think he was the deputy chief of staff. He's deputy chief are of staff. Serious? Yes. Yeah. He was deputy chief of staff. So it was Leo who was Leo, Leo was, was chief of staff. I Leo can't was chief. He would work with yeah. this idiot Josh Lyman. All right. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> it's it's even better than you thought. Statement number three from MidasTouch.com. Oh, oh my god. god. Uh, it's just a quote tweet of President Biden's update on Operation Fly Formula. The quote tweet says, "This is what leadership looks like." <laughs> Wait, it, it, was it a quote retweet of the tweet that? Biden then had to delete because seventy thousand. It was not. It was not. Uh, that, that would be wrong. great. That it was, would be great. It, yeah. Oh my god, this is tough. All right, every uh, one of these is bastard. Hold on, I'll, I'll turn around. If you are you ready to make your selection? Uh, this is tough. What was, can you read back number two again? The Buffalo shooting shines a light on Republican rhetoric, and Congress once again faces the question of whether it will produce any significant policy in response to a mass shooting. My God, these are so tough. All right, that's my official guess. Okay. Let's work through these for a minute. Okay. So number two, it seems to me like like that's a that's uh, it's exactly what he thinks. I mean, I guess the question is whether he RT'd it or not. Um, See, my thing is, would he be smart enough to realize you're not helping build bridges to Congress and get shit passed if you call them do nothing idiots, especially when you control both chambers? Yeah, but this is the debate. That's the that, problem. Like, is he so dumb he doesn't know? Yeah, I think of his strategy so far. His strategy so far was to like let the squad try to run the first year of the of their policy making. Um, all right, so Whitford, absolutely right, definite RT he can't help on Josh he's Lyman. Clowns. Well, and they so all believe cool. like he he's probably like oh this this former this is someone Chief who knows staff, how it works knows how it works. Ansel, Midas touch. I say absolutely. Um, because he sort of like has a history of dealing with that crew. Like ordinarily, I think somebody would take a half step back when you're looking at that crowd and yeah. like RT their stuff, but not him. Like he's fully in the echo chamber. So I say he definitely RTs three and four. My biggest, here's why I have a real problem with it because I, I actually think the strike pack thing, because it's a merch pitch, is it a merch pitch for strike pack? It is. <laughs> I actually believe there are serious ethical, like per- perhaps like legal consequences for a White House chief of staff RTing a super PACs merch sale. Like I, I actually think that that exists in somewhere in like ethics. I mean, that would or legal. make sense. That would make sense because it's a government account. So I would be even this idiot. I feel like I would be blown away if this dude was hitting strike pack merch pitches 
So I'm going to say number one. I mean, that's sound. Sound argument. He did, in fact, retweet Strike Pack. No! He did? Wow. He just doesn't care, dude. Yeah. He just gives These are some lawless shit. people. You're kidding me. He did. And not only did he uh, retweet their merch pitch, he did it, I mean, from his official White House COS. Yeah, see, there's a problem. Isn't there a problem with that? I would think so. We In should a look just into society, that. roll up the paddy wagon. Somebody, <laughs> somebody figure that out. Paddy wagons on the White House lawn today. Here it goes. It goes to shop.strikepack.com. Here's their merch. Amazing. Oh, my God. They have so much Democrats deliver stuff. It's hilarious. Dude, I feel like there's a thing. We need to figure that out. We need to ask some some attorneys about that because that feels to me like a thing. Of course, nobody's reported it out. I right? would love no, to of course not. Of course not. No. I would love to have the Supreme Court case of, of Josh Holmes v. <laughs> Ron, Ron Klain for a fucking violation. <laughs> uh, the, answer, the answer was, in fact, uh, Dana Milbank. Oh my! Uh, really? Yeah. Didn't, didn't RT that he did RT Bradley Whitford and Midas Dutch. Oh, fascinating! Well, congratulations, yeah. Smug. Yeah. You, you hammered that one. Congrats! He, it's always feels guy, weird to win this game. Yeah, <laughs> it's like I can't believe it. it's so much worse. Yeah. So much worse than I thought. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to our interview, Kelly Ann Conway. I want to welcome to the program somebody I've been very anxious to talk to for quite some time. Uh, she's a, a magnificent person. Very interesting. Tough lady, as she's proven uh, through the years. Kellyanne Conway, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Josh. I love being on the Ruthless Podcast. Yeah, well, listen, you know, you're a campaign manager, Trump 2016, a senior counselor of the president. Now you're selling a book. I am. It's called Here's the Deal. It's behind me. Thank you very much. I think people will really enjoy it. It's a big baby, 500 pages. And it is a memoir. It goes through my early years up until Donald Trump plucking me and asking me to be campaign manager in August of 2016. And of course, the rest literally is history. But I think there's a lot in there about the 2016 election, the 2020 elections, certainly um, different policy debates, some that I lost with the president, some where we succeeded together. But he, of course, was the president. He made the final decision. A little bit of palace intrigue, but mostly really I think things that people would want to know in moving forward, what happens to the 74 million Trump voters? Where do we go in terms of the man-made disaster that is the Biden-Harris administration and all of the great policy accomplishments that have been completely unraveled? It almost feels like spite is the governing philosophy Mm. for this current White House. And that's a shame because it's a beautiful country filled with amazing people. And we should have public servants who are doing their very best to help cure many of the ills that are vexing and perplexing Americans right now. So, but I appreciate you giving me a platform to talk a little bit about the book. I know you've read it. What interested you? What do you well, want to know? Here's what I like the most. Here's what I like the most. It feels like in this day and age, almost everybody who writes a book has to do a kind of kiss and tell, right? It's got to be in order to have a successful book, you need to ruin every relationship that you've ever had, right? And you took a decidedly different tact on that. I thought, uh, one of the things that I, I found uh, most endearing is you left some vulnerability out there. You talk a lot about being a working mom, your 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 background, your your home relationships, and how that all boils in. Because you know, it's so often public figures like yourself, nobody thinks about that, right? It, but it turns out, like at the end of the day, you got to go home too. There's no question. Home will always be the most important place. My refuge my happy place. And family always comes first, as I make very clear 
in the book, but most importantly, in my daily life, Josh, the, my four children are the four chambers of my heart. Nothing ever even comes close to being their mom, greatest gift imaginable. And the idea that in 2016 to, to 2020, I could be campaign manager, the first woman to successfully manage U.S. presidential campaign, and then Donald Trump's a senior counselor in the White House, that is very telling of how far we've come. But it also somehow feels differently, too, in that I still think that there were men who were trying to get in my way. I call them men behaving badly in the White House. And yeah. It certainly happened in the campaign. I Some of it may have been sexist, but I think a lot of it is just a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of exclusion, and a little bit of not being able to conceptualize the fact that here we are in Donald Trump's White House, where he is doing what he had done his entire career, elevating women to positions of power and authority. He did it in his organization for years, all of his businesses, The Apprentice, certainly the campaign and now in the White House. Um, I also, you know, it's not so funny, I guess, to younger generations, but I have to look at it with a certain amusement. I say that right here in New York City, when I was pregnant with twins about 18 years ago, we did this pitch to a major magazine and I was feeling really good and I got up to leave and I noticed the man in charge of the decision staring at me and it wasn't at my chest or my legs. It was my big pregnant with twins belly, um, you know, that you couldn't ignore. And he wanted to know who would be served servicing our contract. And I thought, well, I don't know. Do you ask the guys, you know, if they have mistresses or play golf or how much time they spend at the bar or restaurant? So, you know, you have to laugh through some things like that. And I think those real life experiences have made me never want to label myself a feminist. You just have to, I was raised by four strong Italian Catholic women. And I write about that in the book, Here's the Deal, Josh, and how that fortified me to deal with jealous little boys, how that fortified me to really live what the feminists pretend they're living which is to look at everybody the same, to treat everybody according to the golden rule. And honestly, to just be a woman who charts her own, her own course, who um, is very vulnerable in terms of her failures and her shortcomings, is very raw about some of the things people have said and done about me. But, you know, through it all, I, I've held my head high and I learned very early on from my mom and my two grandmoms um, whose husbands had eight children in wedlock and eight children out of wedlock with girlfriends. I mean, it's very odd. I learned to hold your head high. Don't air your dirty laundry. Know that God has a plan for you. And I like to say, Josh, that what God has created, no man or woman can ever cancel. So when I tell my own children, my three daughters, my son, certainly a lot of young people that I speak to these days, formally and informally, Josh, I tell them, you know, nobody can make you feel badly without your permission. And so far, I haven't granted it to anyone and I don't plan to. And people shouldn't also, there's so many ways that you click onto social media, feel bad about badly about yourself, fear of missing out. These young girls read things and fear, fear less than, you're not less than. You're much more than that. You're much more than your social media profile. You're much more than what strangers say about you. But boy, what a, you know, what a heady time where people think that my marriage, my children are any of their business. Have you seen these people, Josh? <laughs> thin skin, terrified, troubled people living in super thin glass houses. I always thought that was the funniest thing about yes. every single time you would, I mean, for, for years, first of all, you were, you were everywhere. And one of the people who best articulated the Trump message from inside and, and in the campaign, because you just sort of got it innately, you sort of understood it. So, but as a consequence of that, you're always out there, right? You were always carrying the message. What I found so fascinating is that somewhere along the line, like you say, all these sort of self-proclaimed feminists, 
um, you know, who, who proclaim all these liberal ideals, uh, all of a sudden felt like your family was fair game. Right. And you're like, you didn't have any thoughts beyond the talking point that you were there to try to provide. And, and I always found that so interesting, but I don't think anyone in your position has ever had to deal with it at the level that you did. It certainly feels that way. I've been told quantitatively that's true. And let's just review quickly. I'm a staffer and my 15 year old daughter's name was trending. Yeah, it's all social media. Big tech allowed that to happen. Josh, at the same time, they were covering for Hunter Biden, the 51 year old son of the former vice president who then wanted to be president and now is the president. Somehow we have to shroud and and protect Hunter Biden, who along with benefiting from taxpayer dollars by flying around China, Ukraine, and God knows where, and cashing in on that. He also had an affair with his deceased brother's wife. He was kicked out of the armed forces. He has a different baby mama, not to be confused with the deceased brother's wife. I mean, here's a genuine waste of space whose laptop was more verifiable than the Steele dossier, yet... The Steele dossier in Russia, collusion, delusion, illusion, chapter 30 of my book, uh, that went on for two and a half, close to three years. But Hunter Biden's laptop, people knew right away these intelligence officials with fancy titles signed on to a letter saying this is Russian disinformation. This is a shock worn product of the Trump campaign, folks. It was verifiable. And to have 51 year old Hunter Biden shrouded, protected and costed in a teenage girl of a staffer for all the world to see is something I think even through all my Christian mercy and forgiveness, I will not forget. And I will not forgive. And it came from people who look at this Taylor Lorenz character. Oh, MSNBC. She's a 38 year old Peter Pan of a woman. Alleged. She, might, she might be older than that. We don't, we're still. We're Alleged. <laughs> well, she went to boarding school in Switzerland, but she's, you know, got thin skin and blue blood from Greenwich, Connecticut, and just her beat is somehow to talk about influences, but she tries to ruin other kids' lives and then cries like a, a baby on TV where, you know, saying, oh, they're docs me. She's these narcissistic tendencies. Why do I, why does your audience care? They need to care for a very simple reason. Folks, the job of the media, very simply, is to get the story. Mm-hmm. It's not to get the president or get the staffer or get the staffer's family. It's to get the story. And the lack of curiosity about get about digging into anything that may be true or not true is really just what's startling. I know it's look, Josh, I know it's easy to talk about media bias and media selectivity. That's easy to see though. It's all the things people can't see. It's all the stories that don't get run. Where is the, where, where are the stories about the Sussman trial now? Where are the stories about Robbie Mook, the 2016 Hillary okay. campaign manager, my companion is Trump's 2016 campaign manager admitting under oath, Hillary knew about the Sussman plan and, and said, yeah, take it to the media. They didn't trust Comey's FBI. So instead of taking it to the authorities, they went to where they knew they'd get a good story and a fair hearing, the media. They gave it to a New York Times reporter. Ladies and gentlemen, this affects you because what? think of all the stories that were never told in the 2,600 plus minutes of airtime that the Russia collusion, illusion, delusion 
received in lieu of you understanding what the economic policy or healthcare policy, education policy, foreign policy, the Trump administration was. Yeah, no, it's just, it's, it's mind blowing. And I wish I could talk to you an hour for an hour about that alone, right? Because it's just, it's just crazy beyond and it, what happened during the Trump era in terms of the alienation of the media entirely is just, there will be books written about it. But, but let me, let me start with this. When you walk in as campaign manager on 2016, you know, unlike an awful lot of people in that orbit at that time, you had a lot of experience. <laughs> like you knew what you were doing, right? How was that a nerve-wracking experience to walk into to something that you, you were? I had to have been questioning how much of it you could control, and yet your name's on the top of the ledger. It's a great, great question and great point. You're absolutely right, and it was very heady. It was very exciting, but I took my shot. I actually gave Mr. Trump some advice that day when he offered me the campaign management position that I had been giving to many people over a long period of time, the Romney people, the McCain people, people running for president in between. I had talked about it openly in speeches on TV. So I don't know that anything I said was particularly genius or new. What was new and genius was Donald Trump's willingness to go somewhere where no one had ever gone and try out those things. I'll give you a couple of quick examples at the beginning of my book. One example is I told Mr. Trump, look, you've already turned this fiction of electability on its head. You were told from the beginning, you can't win. That's a joke. You can't beat all these great Republicans who are running against you. You vanquished them all. You had center stage in the debate on August 6, 2015 and never lost center stage. Mm -hmm. So follow that through with Hillary because all we're told is she can't lose, you can't win. Electability is a fiction. And you know what, Josh, you and I have been around a long time. You've been at the highest level of politics yourself. And you know that electability can suck the lifeblood out of some really great men and women who just need a little bit of a chance to prove themselves and win through a meritocracy. Electability pretends I know if you will or won't win long before the election. Electoral college is how you do or don't win. And I asked Mr. Trump, if you can, if you trust me enough. To, to ignore electability and focus on electoral college, we can bust through her blue wall. But that means going to the upper Midwest Rust Belt states with these messages that seem to be catching on. He said, okay. And I said a couple other things. I, I, I went through the whole litany of Hillary's deficits that made her different from her husband, Bill Clinton, who was a two-term president, and made her different from most female candidates who had been seen by voters for years as incorruptible, beyond reproach, are you kidding? Not Hillary. <laughs> As fresh and new, new blood, fresh face. Strike uh. two. <laughs> and third, for those keeping score, third strike she's out was that women were seen in politics as 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 natural negotiators, as great consensus builders, as genuinely interested in what people on the other side of the aisle think, and you could bring them all together. Strike three. Yeah. And so that I had been a student of Hillary, but I almost didn't take my shot, Josh. And it's a lesson to everyone, but particularly women out there, maybe not feeling completely confident in the workplace. He made me campaign manager and I sort of self-sabotaged. I said, okay, Mr. Trump, why don't you call me when you get back from Pennsylvania? We'll talk about it again. He said, okay. And the only person I told that day about my campaign management offer was my husband, George Conway, Hmm. who was a big supporter of Donald Trump and a humongous unqualified supporter of me. 
you know, no holds barred. And he said, Kellyanne, you need to do this. And he insisted I take my shot as Donald Trump's campaign manager, promised to help more at home and with the kids and did exactly that. And of course, was there on election night crying in his black MAGA hat at the Hilton and took a job in President Trump's administration, all written about. And here's the deal. You're right. This is not a tell all and bore most as so many of these books are, Um, because I'm not speaking up now, Josh, because I didn't speak up then. God knows I spoke up then. Yeah, we heard you. We heard you. Yes, and you heard me. Um, But I think it's, it's all, yes, there are some setting the record straight. There are some stories before that nobody's heard. And really there's a strategy in place that we executed in 2016 that could work again, whether President Trump decides to run or he decides to not run. Whoever runs will need to do what Trump did in this way. Take your message directly to the people. Show up where they are. The democratization of information by Donald Trump has transformed our politics forever. Maybe the COVID-compelled way we voted in 2020 uh, disguised all of that, but that should come back again. Whether you liked his Twitter feed or not, the fact, whether you liked him or not, the fact is that everybody received it instant, free of charge, presidential communication. Yeah. If you didn't want to read it, don't read it. If you want to absorb, if you want to dissect it, dissect it. But the plumber on the job, the stay-at-home mom, the billionaire CEO all received it at the same time. And I think the America First agenda is one that many people are starving for right now because they see the abject failures of the Biden administration. You know, this is America, Josh. People will always say, I think it can get better. I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. It will get better. People now are not even saying that. They're saying it was better not that long ago. How do we get that back? Do you think it's, it's, and I know you talked to the the president about this. I'm sure you have, um, about whether he'll run or whether he won't run. I mean, I'm not going to put you on the spot. I'm sure you probably have some inclination. But in terms of what you said about the America First agenda, and about its deep resonance in communities across this country that basically hadn't voted Republican before. Um, is that possible? Are there other candidates that you see out there other than President Trump who have the capacity of galvanizing that voting base? Yes. If they want to be successful, they must yeah. and they would. But President Trump, he is the heir apparent to his on America First Agenda, there's no question about it. And those 74 million Americans who voted for him, highest vote total ever for a sitting president in U.S. history, they are. They also want lower taxes, inflation to go away, education to be more, more structured by the parents in concert with the schools. In other words, they believe fundamentally, as President Trump does, as we all do, that parents have a right to decide where their children go to school and what is taught there. They want to know that Putin and China and Kim Jong-un and Iran are in check. They want to know that these recalibrated reciprocal trade deals that benefit them as the workers, as the job holders, the job creators, the job seekers, they want to be assured that that can happen again. But, um, and this, you know, I see it in the primaries, as I noted the, again, not a genius point, but an important one to raise, as I noted, all these people who are running in the primaries, look at Pennsylvania last week, they're all running as America first, Donald Trump, conservatives, Um, Dr. Oz is the one with the president's endorsement, but Dave McCormick, Kathy Barnett, right down the line, they're running as Donald Trump, America America first type of conservatives. That tells you something about his policy legacy. Mm -hmm. And yes, I have discussed a 2024 race with President Trump. I'll leave any announcement to him. But he sees two things that would compel him to do this. One is unfinished business that he wanted to tackle in the second term. And number two, relatedly, 
the unraveling of all of these policies like energy independence and border security and low gas prices and babies not hooked up to IVs trying to get basic nutrition as they are in Joe Biden's America because their mothers can't find infant formula. So everywhere he looks, he sees problems that he would like to help solve. But I think whether he runs or not, his footprint is so large within the movement and the party now that people can't, you know, people are trying to say, I'm post-Trump. There's a lane for the non-Trump, never-Trump people. That's more like a bike path, <laughs> not a full lane. And it's already crowded with people who think that they're going to somehow get back, get back to what? The John McCain and Mitt Romney campaigns with these loser consultants that are never Trumpers on TV. I call the Republican consultancy a walking RICO violation. The candidates often lose. The consultants always win. They make themselves multimillionaires for losing. Where else does this happen exactly? So I feel like Trump transformed that in a way that we should not go backward. Yeah, no, I listen, you're here on that. Absolutely. Um, let me ask you about your entry into the White House. I guess I can't imagine when you're running the campaign, it's like first job first, right? You got to win the campaign. He wins. I'm sure you're elated, you know, success beyond your wildest dreams. At some point you decide and the president decides he, w- he would like you inside the White House. And you talked a little bit about in your, in your book about how you had some of the fellas trying to sort of elbow you out a little bit. And, and I... <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to, I'm wondering is how much of you deciding to go into the White House felt like an obligation to try to implement the things that you were talking about and the president was talking about in the campaign because you'd been there before, you knew the city, you knew politics, you had a little bit more information than an awful lot of people around that table. It was. You're onto something there. And very few people put it quite that way, Josh. So thank you for doing that on your Ruthless podcast. Look, I think less than an obligation was an opportunity, but what kind of opportunity? Not an opportunity for me to enrich myself. I walked away from a gold mine of eight figures of life-changing money to go into the White House. It was an opportunity to implement, to keep those promises, to implement the policies. And I'm all too pleased that I worked for a president for whom the volume and velocity of the way he works allowed him to keep so many promises and deliver so many policy gains, even to people who don't like him and who are obsessed with him, honestly, completely deranged and blinded by their own feelings towards him. They have bigger houses now, fatter portfolios, many of them. They have a bigger perch from which to criticize him. But for me, I realized very quickly in my public service job at the age of 50. My 50th birthday was Inauguration Day 2017, believe it or not. So I take this job on my 50th birthday. I realized almost immediately, A, how much work there is to be done, how much people are hurting, but B, how much impact and consequence a president's actions can have with a a swoop of a pen, you know, signing of a, a piece of legislation or an executive order, or even just him raising the visibility and, 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 the, and the decibels to an issue that's important. That impact literally um, saves lives and improves lives. So public service is a wonderful calling. I have no regrets in terms of walking away from the gold mining money and going in. My only hesitation really was about my kids. Because yeah. as I said famously at the time, they're four crappy ages for me to go in the White House. And then when I got out of the White House, they were four crappy ages for me to stay in the White House. Uh, but they know they always came first and that will never change. And I think for working moms to understand that I looked up one day in a meeting at about 8.20 a.m., call it a t- random Tuesday or Wednesday, I looked around, I saw Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Ivanka Trump, Brooke Rollins, Mercedes Schlapp, and me 
19 children between us, 12 daughters, seven sons at that moment, ages two to 16. Mm-hmm. Now, don't talk to me about corporate family friendly handbooks where they have paragraphs and <laughs> lawyer sanctioned, you know, focus group verbiage about how family friendly we are. Yes, we are. And then you try to exercise on those passages and you can't. I worked in a family friendly, working mom friendly environment in Donald Trump's White House. And I'm very proud of all of so many of the policies that he was able to put forth that dramatically improve people's lives. And, you know, he'll say, do you miss me yet? Many people miss him and many more even miss his policies. Yeah. Well, listen, we're all glad that you did what you did. It didn't come without sacrifice, as you've outlined in this book, which I, I highly encourage people to to buy and read because it's an entertaining Look, but it's also an important story, I think, for for a lot, particularly a lot of young women, as you as you said. I got three questions that I got to give you before we get out of here. Okay, the the first one, Kellyanne, if you could plan your last meal on Earth, what would it be? My map, my last meal on Earth would be all of my grandmother's homemade favorites because she helped raise me. My grandmother Antoinette had a ninth grade education and was the most wise person I've ever known. Really my favorite person in the world. So it would be her homemade gnocchi. Oh yeah. Chicken parm. And I would say her uh, steak piazzaola. Ah, this is a wonderful Italian meal. Yes. I love that. That sounds and it cool. would take me a long time to finish it all. So I would be extending my life that way. You gotta add a bottle. Of you. you can't go in without uh, something. <laughs> I love right. it. You can add something. Um, all right. So, second question: If you never got into public service at all, and let's let's expand this into the, your whole political career. If if you could just blue sky this huge hole in your life where you actually never did any of the things that you ultimately did, and you could pick anything you wanted to do to fill it with, what would it be? I'd have a podcast called Ruthless. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't pay that well. <laughs> it looks like lots of fun. Uh, well, for me, I would love to be a chef, a professional uh-huh. chef. And the reason I would love to do that is because I'm only somewhat good at cooking, not really that great. And I feel like food and eating together is one of the last things that we have, what last touchstones yes. we have. And people always seem happy when they're sitting across the table, exchanging conversation, sharing a meal learning something new about someone else, whether it's your family every night or it's a a, a new date or a new colleague or a new person at the place of worship or place work. There's something about bringing people together and getting them to try new experiences. And it's food is one of the only thing that still binds all of us. So I always wanted to be a great chef, probably because I know I lack those skills. That's what I'm doing. I would open restaurants up all over the world and just employ lots of people. And I would just love it. I'd fly around Tasting everything. <laughs> Love that. You'd be a great celebrity chef. And I think it um, tells me if you put your mind to it, you could figure that out pretty quickly. Does it matter that I'm neither a celebrity nor a chef? Well, you're kind of a celebrity. You want me to be a celebrity chef? You're, you're kind of a celebrity. I'll do the sequel. I'll do the sequel. Here's the meal. Here's the meal. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Uh, third and final question. Our view is that people, successful people are basically motivated by one of two things, thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. And it's not that anybody doesn't like victory or somehow likes defeat. It's what drives and motivates them, right? And the thrill of victory people are kind of the sunny optimist class half full, always constantly reaching for the next achievement. The agony of defeat people are the the people whose every success they've ever had in life, they enjoy for about two and a half minutes, right? But every setback that they've ever had, they remember it and they vow never to repeat it. And it's sort of what, what 
moves them along the ladder to achieve more and more in their life. So those are the kind of two poles. I'm very interested to hear where do you think you come down on this question? Josh, love the question for my entire life until the last few years, my entire life has been the agony of defeat, learning more from my failures than my successes, my shortcomings, my deficits, things that didn't go, my unlucky breaks, for example. And I tell young people all the time, learn to accept and hear the word no more often than you say it. You will be rejected. You will be passed over. You will be denied an opportunity or an admissions into a school or a romantic relationship progressing that you felt you really wanted or that you deserved or you needed. And you have to dust yourself off and you have to hold your head high and not show one of my favorite biblical verses is if you're fasting, don't let your hair be dirty. Don't not wash your face. Like don't let anybody know you're suffering. And so I think the same thing goes with the agony of defeat. So that's been my entire life has been that way. And it also teaches you, by the way, the agony of defeat also teaches you to not feel sorry for yourself, to not, not try again, to not always just take the safe, smooth path but to really do take the the road less traveled. But I think recently I love the, I don't know what you call it, but the the thrill of victory. Yeah. The thrill of victory only because the failure to win some of these battles means that the wrong, wrong headed solutions or non-solutions and the wrong leaders actually get, you know, in the business I do get into office. And that scares me greatly when I listen to what they think their priorities are, when I see 107,000 overdose deaths last year after President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump got that number down for the first time in 30 years, just by focusing their efforts and their energy on that. When I see when I when I see five dollar gas prices, when I see parents at their wits end, particularly moms like me, one of three million who were driven out of the workforce because screen time is going to be school time a little too long and people are upset about what's being taught there. When I see our military and our law enforcement castigated and denigrated and under-respected and under-resourced, mm-hmm. when, when I, it goes on, when you see the plight of Ukrainian people uh, because Putin is not in check because he invaded a sovereign nation and it just goes on and on. When you see all of this, you're, you, you worry and you say, I love the agony of defeat, but the defeat of freedom loving people, of capitalism, of better ideas of, 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 of free markets, frankly, and free people, that defeat is becoming everyone's agony. And it worries me greatly. Right. But I got to tell you, I would tell a younger self, keep on losing, keep <laughs> on failing, keep on because it makes you be a striver. And it makes you, you know, really look for that one big opportunity where, as 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 the saying goes, one moment in time where it all comes together. But um, but look, you also have to create your own opportunities, and I think people are just kind of waiting for that a little bit. But I'd say agony of defeat until I was fifty, and now thrill of victory. I love it. I love but it. By the way, if you saw me, it's the agony of the feet. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in the wrong business. I would have been a comedian chef, but yes. <laughs> well, you spend an awful lot, lot of time on your feet and you've done a lot of good work for a lot of people across this country. Kellyanne Conway, the book is Here's the Deal. You can find it, I'm guessing, any bookstore or wherever you get your books online. Uh, go out and read it. It's a good one. Thank you so much, Josh. All the best to the Ruthless Podcast. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care. Take care. Tolik, she's always fun to talk to. Full energy, happy to be a part of the front end of her her book release tour here. And, uh, you know, I mean, look, I, I feel like I've learned some things. And what an opportunity. I mean, like, 
such an accomplished per like she has accomplished hell of a lot. Oh yeah. We get to go through I mean, she's accomplished a hell of a lot. Banger of an episode, if I say so myself. Uh we got to play games, we got to have Kellyanne. Excellent episode, if I say so myself. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.